All right, good morning. We're going to switch it up a little bit today. If you wouldn't mind, turn over to uh, Psalm 103. Normally we're going through the book of Acts, but something that's been heavy on my heart, and we did uh, Thursday night, and we're going to continue a little bit different, but in the same vein uh, this morning, is just to have a more of a a time of uh, worship and communion. We have the communion here, as you can see. And we'll talk about how that will work so we're all compliant and whatnot. But uh, I don't know about you, but it seems oftentimes that, for me personally, the more strenuous, uh, whether it's ministry or life or the world or whatever it gets, oftentimes I may be pressing forward. You know, there's a... There's kind of a what has to be done has to be done kind of mentality. You know, you might still come to church. You might still have a morning time. You might still have the worship and, you know, playing in the car or whatever it might be. But if you're anything like me, and if you're not, I apologize because then this will just be for me. But if you're anything like me, it seems like a lot of times that the, the, the Lord can still kind of fade into the background. Every, even though you're doing everything you're supposed to do, right, taking care of the kids, going to whatever it might be. But somehow he, he just can kind of be this almost uh, like cosmic puppeteer or something or just kind of like, yeah, I know he's there, but where does that leave me? Or, you know, all the different ways as, as human beings uh, that we can react. And so something that I was reading kind of sparked and reminded me, uh, there's actually some very old books about it. One is called Practicing the Presence of the Lord, but it's the idea of returning back to his presence and acknowledging his presence that he's with me. Uh, because no matter, you know, the world that we're living in, right, we're, we're told in there in, uh, um, that, that we're being, that the world is trying to conform us into its image. You know, that the world is trying to constantly smash us into a mold of what they, they think we're supposed to be. Whether it's political views or religious views or, uh, I mean, viral views, <laughs> whatever, whatever it might be, we're trying to be put into a mold of viewing. And so there's this, throughout the scripture, from the beginning to the end, there is a, a call to be refreshed by God, to be reminded of his presence, and to be reminded of who he is. And that's really what I want to do today as we kind of dive into the scripture. We're going to look at three different pieces of scripture. Uh, we won't, it won't be as long as we normally go. But just a time to remember that God loves you and that he's with you. And that no matter what befalls us, that that doesn't change. Neither does his view of us change. Neither does his desire for us change or his calling for us or any of those things. That they are unchangeable. And it doesn't matter how how dark and depressed we can get or how dark and depressed this world can get, that he's always there and he's always receiving us back to himself. So if you don't mind, I think uh, Charles Spurgeon has, wise, has wisely said that the, the Psalms are mountain tops of, of praise, but Psalm 103 is the tallest peak. <laughs> In Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, and who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
And here, David, this psalm, uh, the historians that I've looked into mostly believe this was written towards the end of his life. And if there's anyone who could talk about forgiveness and who could talk about God's loving kindness and mercy and steadfast love, practically speaking, it was David. But he makes this call. He starts the whole thing by this. He says, bless the Lord. Now, the word bless, it, it, you know, ultimately, it's used I don't know, a ton of times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But, but in the Old Testament, when it, relating to God, it's always the idea of adoration or praise, the idea of bless the Lord. When it relates from God to men, typically it's as some sort of boon uh, that, that occurs in a person's life. And, and, and he gives a list of benefits, as it were. But there's this need and this call, and this is what I found in my own life when things get more difficult or things get more uh, uh, freaky, as it were, uh, and more weird, to call and to reach down, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, as C.S. Lewis has widely, uh, wisely said, I'm, I'm not a body that contains a soul. I'm a soul that lives in a body. And, and the, the reason for the differentiation is a lot of times because we relate to everything through our bodies, taste and feel and smell and all these things, that we can, that this is where we live and this is what we have. When in reality, the Christian perspective is far more larger than our bodies and our temporal interactions in this world with them. And so this idea of the soul, it's, the, it's who you are. You are not a body that contains a personality. You are a soul, a life. And the word can be used in Hebrew for emotion, all sorts of different things. It's the collective of who you've become to this day that happens to interact with this temporal world through a body. So he calls down into his very soul, in the innermost being, and says, Bless the Lord. And sometimes that can be an emotional and exciting thing, and, and sometimes it's just a reality that needs to occur. But the idea of bless the Lord, to get away from everything that this world would, would throw at us, everything that my own deceitful heart would throw at me, everything that the, the, the enemy of my soul would throw at me, and instead to reach beyond that from my very soul, my very core, in all its brokenness, and bless the Lord. To give him adoration, to acknowledge who he is and his authority and what he's done and what he's doing. It would be very difficult to bless the Lord. We're not trying to make this a self-centered service by any means, but it would be very difficult to bless the Lord with the reality of the fact that he has given us so many benefits. He's done so much for us. And to move beyond that, not just the things that he's given us, but his heart towards us. Right? A gift means nothing if the giver doesn't love you. I mean, I guess the lottery, they don't love you. Maybe you might find joy in that. But ultimately, the true gifts, the things that you cherish. My, I, we have a shed, and yesterday I, I pulled my wife's hope chest out of the shed to be gone through and different things like that. And she's bringing out all these things like, oh, man, I, I wrote this when I was like five years old. This is crazy. Or my mom gave me these books when I was 10 years old. And, you know, all these. And, but the, she was so excited about these books. And, I, and not that I wasn't excited. Well, I wasn't. I mean, I'll just be honest. It was, they were her books. But, it was, but, you know, but the, the point was that these are books that there's probably millions of copies of. I mean, they're all the classics. You know, these old classics. Millions of copies. But they were special because they're the gift giver. And I think that, that as we consider and as we want to move forward in our, in our uh, walk with Jesus in this absolutely crazy world, we have to focus on the gift giver and who he is. We have to take refuge and courage and joy in who he is because he always acts according to who he is. That's what trust is based on, right? You learn to trust someone because they continually exhibit behavior that shows you what's inside of them. 
And so as we want to bless the Lord, oh, our souls, as we want to you know, bless his holy name and consider him, that's where we have to come back to. The fact of who he is. In this case, David says, bless his holy name. And uh, if, you know, societally holiness is always kind of attributed to, or even the word piety, it's, it, it kind of means uptight in our society. If you say the word holy, you're, you typically it's with the phrase holier than thou, or some sort of negative idea, or fear. And, and, and to be fair, he is a fearful being, because he's the Lord of glory. But when we worship and we bless the Lord with our whole soul because of his holy name, the idea is that he is set apart or sacred. Not sacred and untouchable. Kind of when you say the word sacred, you kind of think of like, I don't know, I think of monks, you know, and kind of some sort of Latin uh, litany or something like that. But he's not untouchable. No, we know he's not. We know that from Hebrews, as believers, we have boldness to enter into his throne room in times of need. So we're not saying untouchable or something like that or, or bizarre, but that he is set apart. He was different in those days from Baal or Moloch or any of the false gods. False gods that demanded your firstborn. False gods that demanded uh, sacrifice, not for the forgiveness of sin, but to, in a sense, pay them off. He was separate. He was different. And, and, and he was separate from us. Praise God he's not like us. You know, the scripture tells us there's no shadow of turning in him. That, that doesn't mean that, that he wouldn't cast a shadow in the sun. It means that no matter how you look at him, there's no shadiness. There's no darkness in him. He's never, he never has ulterior motives. Isn't that in our society constantly? Don't we deal with that? What are you really saying? What do you really mean? You said this, but I think maybe you meant this, or maybe you have this in store even though you said this. But with him, he's not like that. He's never repaid evil for evil. And, and so as, as David makes this psalm, he's, he's saying, look, bless the Lord. There's this call inside of us to, to move away from and not deny that it's happening, but not, not indulge in what this world has for us or is trying to crush us with, but instead to remember why we're here and for whom we're here. And he says, forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. In other words, iniquity is interesting. There's three words that are used in the Old Testament uh, for sin, and it, it, my Hebrew is terrible, but essentially it's like chita or chet, which I'm sure there's some Hebrew way to say that. Uh, and then there's avon, uh, and then there is pesha. And they're translated sins, which is chita, and then they're translated avon, which is, or I should say avon is translated iniquity, uh, and then pesha is translated transgression. And the point is that one of them, some of them have to do with like transgression is the breaking of covenant, and it's how we treat other people. Uh, and how we treat God and his covenant. But the idea of iniquity, avon, it means bent or perverted. And it's to pervert God's ways or to, to pervert what is right, to, to bend it. And so the, one of the, the uh, or I should say, the most used example for forgiveness in the Old Testament is that is bearing avon or carrying uh, iniquity. And so the idea, essentially, when, like, for example, if you read the prophets where God says, I will visit the iniquity of this country or this people group upon them, they will bear their iniquity. The idea is that someone has perverted what is good to such an extent that it has collapsed upon them, and they're reaping what they've sown, and now they're carrying that load. 
And we can see that, you know, when we, if we ruin relationships with our tongues, if we ruin other people with anger, if we, whatever it might be, fill in the blank, if we destroy our lives through addiction, eventually we reach a point where we bear what we have done by perversion. Does that make sense? So when he says that he has forgiven all our iniquity, the idea is, and we're going to look at how that, how that happened, that all the perversion, all the twisting, and all the guilt and the, the, the wickedness that has come from that, he forgave it. And this is one of the most primary needful messages. It's the gospel. And we'll look more at the, the, the nuts and bolts of the gospel and how it happened. But the gospel, the fact that he has forgiven all of your iniquity, everything you've done and everything you deserve to be visited upon you, he forgave it. And we'll, we'll, we'll mention more of that because it gets, it gets pretty cool in some of the metaphor. He heals all of your diseases and he redeems your life from the pit. Now, this is interesting. Sometimes this gets used to kind of make a point that, that if you get sick, it's because you haven't had enough faith. But that's just not real. And we could go through the entire scripture, and I'd be glad to sit down with you afterwards to talk about those things. But he is not making a statement. You know, David's own son died of some sort of disease because of, of the fact that God was not going to allow, essentially, a reward from his iniquity. But there's, there's multiple times where people die from disease. So why does he say he heals all your diseases and he redeems your life from the pit? Because the pit is, is essentially a metaphor for the grave. And I would just put forward that these ideas are that ultimately, in the end, whether it be in the millennial kingdom of, of Christ or whether it be when we all are finally in heaven forever or however it all works out, that your diseases, everything that could be wrong with you and your body will be done away with that you'll receive a new body, that all of your diseases will be healed, that your life will be redeemed from the pit, and then who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Now, throughout Scripture, a crown is kind of something, the idea of, of what you would point to, something you'd boast in, that it's, it's your, uh, your authority, but it's, it's, it's something where you go, it's like people observe it and it, it gives glory. Glory ultimately meaning good opinion. And so he crowns you, with steadfast love and mercy, our boast, our crown, what we wear, that he gave us is that he has steadfast love. We live in a world and we are people where we have wavering love if we talk about an emotional love. Even if we're talking about agape love, that we struggle in our, in our sinful nature to truly love a human being. So the idea of a perfect and a steadfast love, uh, I think experientially can be difficult for us. Because there's, there is, outside of Christ, there is no perfect love. We've never done it, and people around us have never done that. So to come back to a conclusion and to, to consider something outside of our experience, that God loves you with a steadfast love and mercy, and he's crowned you with that. That he sees you with that. It's how he relates to you. And, and actually, David's going to get a little bit more uh, detail with this. Then he goes on to say, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He satisfies you with himself. He alone is good. We all have probably, I, I, don't, I shouldn't say that, I bet that all of us can point to some experience, especially in our childhood, where we received some gift, some Christmas present, some birthday present, and we, we thought it was just the end all. You know, I can remember being, I was probably like four years old, and I remember for Christmas, one Christmas, I got this plastic model of the Millennium Falcon. And I just thought, this thing is amazing. 
Like, this is what life is about, you know? And I ran around the house and shot down everything and, you know, uh, just defeated the empire and all that. Until one day, the Millennium Falcon was sold in a garage sale. And I felt nothing. I didn't care. I was perfectly pleased to have the 50 cents or whatever it netted. Now it's probably worth like $5,000. But, you know, (laughs) somebody out there got a 50 cent... (laughs) Good things in this life are temporal. But see, he satisfies us with the truly good. He satisfies us with his presence. Is there anything more satisfying than than the assurance of salvation and the assurance of his peace when chaos ensues? Is there any more satisfaction or good than having that interaction with God? No, everything else is this kind of bizarre plastic imitation, isn't it? We, we, We toy with it. We play with these things. Like, again, to quote C.S. Lewis, he says, we, we toy, we, we play with sex or parties or alcohol because we think it satisfies us. But in the end, we're just as empty as when we started. It's not, it's not so with God's things. He is eternal in nature. His promises, eternal in nature. And that which satisfies is because of our hearts, internal in nature. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Again, these are millennium promises the future reign of Christ we see oppression today and we see we've seen it for history does he deliver sometimes absolutely he does and we've seen through history where God in his his amazing wisdom and however he decides to do things he's smarter than me he has delivered people and then we see where he has not and it is not us for to judge what is right and what is wrong in that situation. He knows way more than we do. But ultimately, justice and righteousness will, be, will prevail. And no oppressed person will be left in that area. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. I mean, think about just that small statement. Israel is like so much like us. When you read Israel, they have extremely high highs. The Lord is our God and we'll obey everything he says to just absolute depravity and, 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 and completely forsaking the Lord. And, but he showed his ways to them. He didn't, he didn't take his ways from them. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Again, We live in a society, and we grow up in a society based on merit, right? Everything we do or don't do or we receive, for the most part, is meritous. Our grades are meritous. I'm not saying this is a bad system. I'm saying it's how we affiliate with everything. Our friendships are meritous. If you're kind to me, I reciprocate that. If you're not, I cut you out of my life. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm not talking about mental health right now. I'm just saying that everything that we do is meritous. At your job, it's meritous. If you excel at your job, you get raises. If you don't, you don't. You know, there's the, everything we look at in life is meritous, and it's just fine. But now God says, I don't work with you on a basis of merit. And that can be confusing to us because we're like, oh, wow, that means that you just are nice for just because you are. I don't know if I like that for other people. I like that for me a lot. But I'm not sure the system could really work that way. But he says, I do not relate to you. To his people, I do not relate to you. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Think about that. 
God is not paying you or repaying you for your sins. Is there fallout from sin? Sure. I mean, if you're a jerk to everybody, you'll have no friends. I mean, there's fallout to sin. But as far as your relationship to God and how he looks at you, he doesn't do what we do. He doesn't go, I remember last week when you told me to shove off. And now we're going to have this weird, awkward session for about a month, and then we'll kiss and make up, and it'll be okay. He doesn't relate like we do. He loves you. He cares for you. He sees your iniquities. He sees the fallout from your sin, and he still wants what's good for you. He does not relate to you according to your iniquities or repay you for them. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Again, the, the metaphor, hyperbole, as high as the heavens are above the earth. I don't know if, you know, if we, if we measured stratosphere or if we measured where, like, actually the heaven. You know, it's, it's, this is the word for, for the heavens, the sky. But it's a long ways. You know, if you figure a, a jet airliner travels at like 36,000, 38,000 feet, that's a lot of love. And then, and then beyond that, the stratosphere. It's a lot of love. He says he, that's how he looks at you. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Like the song that we sing, and think about that. It's just based on the globe, right? If you, if you go north to south, because we have poles and the globe spins a certain way, if I go north, eventually I'll end up going south again, right? But if I go east, I'll never go west. And so the picture is that our sins have been separated us to the point where they can never find us again. And again, we're not talking about life situation here. We can't just go out and do whatever you want and then feel that there won't be, won't be any kind of uh, you know, backlash from that. No, we're not saying that. We're saying in our relationship with God, how he looks at your sin is as far as the east is from the west for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have trusted in what Christ did at Calvary, your sins are separated from you. You are forgiven. Past, present, and future. You live in a state of forgiveness. The Bible puts it in a couple of different ways. It says that we've died with Christ because of our sin. The law slew us. We die with Christ. When we trusted in him, it says when we trusted in him, it says that we raised with him and now we live with him with the same life. That's Romans chapter 6. So over and over again, we have this illustration in the scripture that our sins are not imputed or accounted to us in any way, shape, or form before the Lord. You are forgiven. It's amazing. He's going to go on. He's going to say, uh, as, uh, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those that fear him. I think it's really important he didn't say, as a person shows compassion to children. Because let's be honest, other people's kids were like, hmm, are you serious? Our own were like, they're having, they're tired. They had too much sugar. We have a million reasons why it's okay for our children to be brats, but someone else's kid becomes their brat, and we're like, hmm, if you were better parents. No, you know, as a father has compassion, a good father, not a bad father, as a father has compassion, that's how he looks at you, his child. See, it's, why are we going painstakingly through this? And obviously more could be said. But because we need to be, I think, reminded of who God is to us. That he's not this cosmic judge, although he will judge. But that in Christ, we've not been destined for wrath anymore. It is not our destiny. 
We've been given a destiny as Christians. It tells us that in Romans and Ephesians, all over the place. We have a destiny as Christians. You are destined to be conformed to the image of his son. You're destined to be like Christ, not in divinity of nature, but in actuality and in character. That you're going to be like Christ. Because he has compassion for you. He has love for you. When, for me personally, and I, and I hope for you also, when I, when I begin to think of these things and mull these things over, all of a sudden, all this world and what it has, it's not so important anymore, is it? All the, the fear and the good of the world, all of a sudden it kind of fades, doesn't it? Because of who he is and what he's doing. And let the world do what it may, whatever. That's fine. Because we're going to heaven. We're being changed. God is working in us. He's working for us. We get the pleasure of suffering, as Peter and Paul and Jesus all told us. But that suffering will actually reap a glory in our hearts and be a help to others. So all of a sudden, this world and its weirdness, it's like, ah, yeah, it's probably not going to be fun. But it's going to be okay. We're going to be just fine. He goes on, and there's great stuff there, but for time's sake, let's flip over, or I should say flip back to Isaiah. And look at this. We have a, a prophecy here from Isaiah, oops, where he's going to move forward with some awesome things to say. I should say look forward, not move forward. In Isaiah 53... We have this prophecy that the Lord gives Isaiah that Isaiah shares with God's people, and it's regarding Jesus. And this is what happened in Christ's life and on the cross. It says here in, in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Peter actually quotes this verse in, in his letter, his first letter, and he links the healing of wounds to what Christ did at Calvary, that through his blood that we, were, we received that forgiveness of sin, that our sin wounds are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Three times, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 11, this idea is again broadcasted. And actually in 53, all the words for sin are used. That Christ forgave, bore, carried all of it. All of it. Again and again, he forgave our iniquity. He bore our iniquity. Very personal when, when you start to think that, when we start to look at these verses and, and all of a sudden it goes from this kind of ethereal crucifixion that occurred uh, 2,000 years in the past, but in actuality, he was pierced for my transgressions. That I, I nailed him there. But in, and as we review this, the heart isn't like, Jesus went through some rough stuff, so you should feel really bad. No, the heart of this is, this is who God is. This is his heart for you. It's a place to rejoice. I suppose that there is a place in our hearts for grief to say, I'm sorry, Lord, that you had to go through that for me. But a place of joy to say that you are willing. 
In fact, we're going to read, a, I think, one of the most profound verses in the entire scripture here in a moment. But he goes on, he was pierced, we've gone astray, we've, and we've all turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all. In other words, all the perversion and the side effects from that that we have caused were laid on Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. The one who invented freedom was oppressed. Yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shear is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, stricken for the breaking of covenant of my people, stricken for going where they ought not to have gone for my people. He was stricken for that. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. We're told in Hebrews that as he went to the cross, that our Lord Jesus, he despised the shame. It means he disesteemed it. He, it, it didn't mean anything to him. The shame wasn't a motivator for him. But he looked to the joy set before him. And the joy set before him would be that he would purchase a, a bride. That he would purchase a people. This is what all the old covenant all looked forward to. Every sacrifice, every feast, every tradition all looked forward to the fact that Christ would one day, once and for all, deal with sin for all humanity, for anyone who would believe in him. And we see it went through this incredibly difficult and oppressive way. But he goes on there in verse 10. This is, I think, one of the most profound ideas uh, ever. <laughs> Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other translations, the New American Standard, other places, it says, it pleased him to crush him. Not in a masochistic, weird way, like God loves pain or something like that. But it, the, when the Lord, when God the Father crushed Christ on the cross... There was a pleasing to that because he knew what he was doing. He knew that at the end, this, I have to do this so that I can reap this, so I can have my own people that will be cleansed and be without sin to be with me in heaven forever. So there was a part of the cross where the, the father looked at it and said, this is my will. I desire to do this for you and for me. It's pretty wild. That's how much God wants to be with you. Sometimes we get this idea that he's like this cosmic sin counter and he can't wait to just pound us for what we're really like. And, then, and, and when we relate to him in that way, we completely miss out on what the cross was about and what forgiveness is about and what God wants for us. That he loves and cares about you so much that he said it's worth destroying my son. And he says there that when, the, when Christ makes that offering for guilt... It's going to be enough. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be, see and be satisfied. When we think of satisfaction, I mean, that's what the word means, right? To be satisfied, to be satiated, to not have want or need for more, right? That's what satisfaction is. Completion, fulfillment. When the Father saw the crushing of Christ, when Christ bore all the sins of the world, God was satisfied. Think about that. The penance, the penalty for sin, 
In 1 John, it's called the propitiation, which just means just the right payment, the exact right payment. That's what Christ did. He satisfied God. We relate to a God not who is desiring or demanding. We, we meet with a God who's satisfied for the payment for sin. And he goes on here, a couple more ideas. He says there in verse 12, I'm sorry, we'll, we'll finish uh, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There it is again. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his, his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, dressers, yet bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You've been interceded for. He loves you. We're out of time, but in Luke, when, Luke 22, when our Lord Jesus finally introduces, I shouldn't say finally as if he had been my time period, when our Lord Jesus introduces communion, he starts it with the disciples and he says, it is with desire that I have desired to eat this with you. I mean, if I were going to be betrayed by all my followers and I was going to be crucified and mocked by everybody I came to save, I think I'd want me time. If it was the night before that was going to go down for me, I'd be like, you guys, I'm tolerating you right now. I'm going to need you to leave. I need some me time. It's kind of like going into the bathroom when you have kids, you know, whatever it might be. Like, just leave me alone. But Jesus' perspective was this. Not you're a, you're a hassle to me. This whole cross thing, I'm willing to do it, but you know what? You're hassle to me. We'll talk afterwards. I have a time to, count, to kind of calm down from what you're causing me. That's how we treat people. No, he said, you know what? I have wanted to eat this with you, and I'm so excited to do it. I'm so excited to have this last dinner with you. And then he says, in that time, in that moment, he says, look, here's something I want to give to you, this bread and this cup, and I want you to remember me until I come back. And he says, when you eat this bread, I want you to consider my body, that it was given for you, that it was rent, that it was torn, that I came in this body, and it was solely for you so that I could redeem you back to myself. And then he says, and when you drink this cup, I want you to remember something. My blood starts a new testament. The blood of bulls and goats, that was the old covenant. The old covenant based on when you bring these sacrifices by faith, that there will be a, a, a metaphoric experience where you transfer your sin by laying your hand on this beast, and the sin, your sin goes to that beast, and then its blood will be shed. And the word there is that you know, there's atonement. There's a smearing over by blood. But when Christ came, it wasn't just atonement in a smear. It was that sin was done away with and forgiven. So he says, I want you to remember that the old covenant is, is done. And now there's a new covenant in my blood. The permanent and once for all forgiveness of sins for all that have lived in the past and all that have lived in the future. In all the things he could call us to remember, the fact that he says, I want you to remember that you're forgiven through my blood. That when you look at the cross, not to feel shame and guilt, but to feel joy and peace and thankfulness. So crazy society out there, crazy lives, crazy hearts, our own. But the Lord loves you. And he's working and he has great things for you. And I would encourage you as we have these last few songs is that to come up and just rejoice as you take the bread, as you, you take the cup and to remember uh, what he's done for you.
So uh, to keep in um, somewhat compliance with the, uh, the law of the land, uh, we'll have deacons up here, and they'll be handing the, the communion to you. Uh, so bunch of hands don't go into the, the bread. Uh, so feel free to come up as, as the Lord leads you, and uh, they'll hand you your communion. And feel free to take uh, on your own. Uh, we're, we'll do it individually. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this bread and this cup. Thank you for the promises of your word, both Old and New Testament. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, we appreciate all that you've done for us. And we thank you for not rewarding us according to what we deserve, not giving us uh, the just deserts of our sin or how we've treated others. But Lord, thank you that you continually acknowledge and look at us as your sons and daughters. Lord, may we go out of this place refreshed uh, in the memory of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.